Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And the theme for this week is, if she builds it. <laughs> because, because on Monday, we talked about women in construction actually on the site building the buildings. And we trotted out lots of dismal statistics. So today, we're going to talk about women designing the buildings, women in architecture. And things get a little better. Yeah, I mean things things are not as bad in in architecture, although they're still certainly not glowing. What what I found interesting in researching this episode was how hyper aware people in the industry are of the issues that women face and and the issue of not having enough women in the field. Um that doesn't mean that people are necessarily doing anything about it, but I, I appreciate that people are hyper aware and are drawing attention to it as opposed to construction where basically women are the only ones talking about women. Yeah. Well, and when it comes to architecture, too, there's it also seems like there's been this constant focus just in general of gender when looking at a building and at public spaces yeah. because a lot of times these giant monuments and skyscrapers are considered very masculine. Phallic. Masculine. <laughs> phallic. Very phallic, yes. The Washington Monument is like a giant penis in the middle of Washington, D.C. It's true. <laughs> so if we go, though, to the very beginning of the history of women in architecture, mm-hmm. focusing in on the United States, they had to fight this idea that women couldn't supervise construction and wear a dress at the same time, which does kind of hearken to our construction episode, too. Mm-hmm. It's it's like, wow, this is no place for a woman and her dresses and, and shoes. Yeah. Transgressing all over the place. Yeah. Basically, you know, if you're 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 if you're a woman, you're too feminine to be an architect. But if you're an architect, you're too masculine to be a woman. It's, there's all sorts of weird dynamics going on about expectations and norms. But we do have lots of rad ladies to talk about. We do. Starting back in 1873 with Mary L. Page, she was the first woman to earn an actual architecture degree. Way to go, Mary. Yeah, and that was at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So way to go, University of Illinois. But the real first woman, not to just get her architecture degree, but actually build buildings in the United States, is Louise Bethune, who was born in 1856 in Waterloo, New York. And as the story goes, a family friend once sarcastically joked to Louise, hey, you know, you should do Louise, you should be an architect or something. <laughs> and Louise was like, huh. I actually like the sound of that. I think I'll, I think I'll do just that. <laughs> and do what she did. She did. I love that story. At just 20 years old, she became a draftsman at the Buffalo office of Richard A. Waite and F.W. Calkins. And at the time, you might think like Buffalo. What's Buffalo. up with Buffalo? Well, it turns out Buffalo was an architectural hotbed at the turn of the century and it attracted big names like Henry Hobson Richardson, Louis Sullivan, Daniel Burnham, and Frederick Law Olmsted. He of the garden fame. Oh, yes. Well, in 1881, Bethune founded her own architectural firm with her would-be husband. And also, that's another theme we'll see a lot. Lots of husband-wife teams in architecture. And so she becomes, by virtue of that, the first woman to start her own architecture firm. 
And here's a great thing about Louise. She had no time for the gender wage gap. In 1893, she refused to put in a bid to design the women's building for the Chicago's World Columbia Exposition because female architects would only make $1,000. They had $1,000 to give, and that was it, compared to the minimum $10,000 that male architects were going to be paid, in addition to other fees that they would also collect just for for their designs for the World Columbia Exposition. So she was like, you know what? No, I'm not going to. Why would I do that? I'm worth more than that. It costs a lot to maintain a penis. <laughs> it's true. Um, but the the designer of that building was Sophia Hayden Bennett. She was the first woman to receive an architecture degree from MIT in 1890. Uh, but she ended up getting really sort of pushed around by jerkish male architects came down with so-called brain fever, was sent to a sanitarium, and never designed another building. And in fact, the men around her cited her reaction to all of this as evidence that women weren't cut out for this work. Yeah. Sophia Hayden Bennett is is a sad story to kick things off. Yeah, sorry. The cautionary tale of, of going for that lower... That lower women's wage. Um, but ba- going back, though, to Louise Bethune, she was also a founding member of the Women's Wheel and Athletic Club because, yes, she also thought that bicycles were awesome for female emancipation. Well, yeah, but she also rode in groups with fellow lady cyclists, sort of critical mass style, in order to provide protection, you know, safety in numbers. They're not going to harass us as badly if there's a whole bunch of cycling ladies together. So in other words, Louise Bethune was one progressive Gal pal. Yeah, we like her. We like her a lot. Uh, and in 1885, with the lobbying assistance of Daniel Burnham and Lewis Sullivan, Bethune became the first woman admitted to the Western Association of Architects. And this makes her a recognized professional architect. And a few years later, she becomes the first woman admitted to become a fellow of the American Institute of Architects. Now, her architecture wasn't particularly innovative. It often focused on utilitarian, simple structures. She built schools, public buildings, things like that. But still standing in Buffalo is Hotel Lafayette that is considered her greatest work. And it is a lovely structure. But I mean, she wasn't She wasn't uh, wowing people with these crazy new designs, but still, she was the first woman and she was actually building buildings, which is pretty cool. But the second name we're going to talk about is really the first big name for women in architecture. And Julie Morgan is a pretty incredible figure. Yeah, Julie Morgan grew up being really good at math, and it helped that she had a mother who encouraged her instead of telling her to get back in the kitchen. She ended up going to engineering school at Berkeley in 1890, and with the help of a mentoring technical drawing professor and a couple of influential friends, she decided to pursue architecture after graduation, and she went straight for the best. She went to Paris's École de Beaux-Arts in 1896, where she ended up taking three Entrance exams. Why three? Okay, so she failed the first two times, which might have been influenced, she later found out, by professors who were not really interested in letting the first mademoiselle into their hallowed halls. And she didn't let that deter her, though. She went for the third try. And in a letter home, she wrote, I'll try again next time anyway, even without any expectations, just to show the jeunes filles are not discouraged. 
pardon my poor French, I think that meant she was like, girls are not to be messed with. <laughs> That's exactly what she meant. And her efforts paid off. She was the first woman to graduate from that Paris school and was the first woman to be licensed as an architect in California. And the thing is, Caroline, I really like the fact that, hey, it took three Times yeah. to get into this. And there was also a, a ticking clock because they cut off um, ad- admission at 30 years old. And she was 29, had to, you know, pass this exam, also had to get all these points by working on certain buildings. And she did all of it by the time she was 30. But it's, I don't know, I feel like it's a nice lesson of, hey, you know what? When even when you're trailblazing, you don't always make it the first time, and that's okay. Yeah, try, try again. And she eventually opened her own firm. Her first boss was rumored to relish in her cheap labor as a woman, so it's good that she went her own way. But at that firm, she provided mentorship and training for both men and women, and every member of the firm was able to participate in a profit-sharing plan. And what's so great about her focus on mentorship, which, you know, Kristen and I hammer home in our episodes a lot, her apprentices, when they left her from under her wing, were known for their thorough training. So it was known that she was not only a smart cookie, but that she was able to really provide an excellent training ground for her apprentices. And after she went independent, between 1919 and 1939, she worked tirelessly on what is her most famous building, which is the Hearst Castle built for William Randolph Hearst. And it's this massive complex in California. And she was often working 18-hour days, quote, subsisting on coffee and chocolate bars. Sounds like an ulcer. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I mean, this Google image, seriously, the Hearst Castle, because... I cannot explain to you. I mean, I probably could explain to you square footage wise, but I don't have the stats in front of me. But it is massive. Mm-hmm. It is so huge. Can I talk <laughs> any more about how big it is? Clear. I should get a job at the Architectural Review. <laughs> well, so you might think, OK, well, that's a really long time. 1919 to 1939, working on the Hearst Castle, working 18 hour days. Surely she didn't have time to do anything else. That was her one contribution. Nay. No, she designed more than seven hundred structures. Part of this and part of the lives of many women in the architectural field is that she never had any kids. She didn't have a family life that was taking up part of her time. Her entire life was dedicated to architecture and she really didn't mind. She said that her buildings would be her legacy. And I mean, and what a legacy to leave behind 700 plus structures. And, and two, while she was working on that Hearst Castle, she would be, have to take all of these train rides followed by car rides out to this, uh, this massive expanse while she would still be working on other projects. She was the queen of multitasking, it seems like. Yeah, there was one, uh, male architect colleague of hers who said he went down there to the Her- the site of the Hearst Castle building, uh, just to check it out. And they worked all day. She, he was like, yeah, I watched her work all day. We got back on the train and I skipped work the next day because I was exhausted. She went right back into work. Julie Morgan never slept. Well, then she was finally awarded the American Institute of Architects gold medal in 2014. (laughs) A little bit after her time. Yeah. To which some of the people said, oh, that's great. Yeah. Julie Morgan absolutely deserves this honor. But it's 2014. What's going on? But this also is indicative of how the architecture industry 
is playing catch up. Yeah. In terms of recognizing women's contributions. But it's we've also got to look at the context for sure of the era in which Morgan and Bethune were working. By 1900, there were only 40 practicing female architects in the United States. And our first licensed architect was a woman by the name of Marion Mahoney Griffin. Yeah, in 1894, Alice Hands and Mary Gannon formed the first female architectural partnership. This is just kind of a side note, but I thought it was really interesting that they, you know, had this first, but also they were really focused on social justice and building affordable housing, particularly for working women at the time. So interesting to see what kinds of buildings women want to focus on, even back then at the turn of the century. And that same year... Marion Mahoney Griffin becomes the second woman to graduate in architecture from MIT. Remember that the the first female graduate was Sophia Hayden Bennett, the one who came down with brain fever. But Mahoney Griffin in 1895 was hired by a gentleman named Frank Lloyd Wright. It was actually his first hire. And her renderings of his designs, A, helped hone the prairie school style and be popularized Wright's work. In other words, Marion Mahoney Griffin was instrumental to the fact that we all know and recognize Frank Lloyd Wright's work today. Yeah, and just three years after Wright hired her, Griffin became the first, that's when she became the first licensed female architect in the U.S., And to round out our list of architectural trailblazers, we've got to talk about Norma Merrick Sklarik, who graduated from Columbia University in architecture, one of two women, by the way, in her class. But she had a hard time finding a job because... She was black and female. Yeah, she said that she didn't know when she uh, didn't get the job, if she failed a job interview, if which one was working against her more. Um, But despite all this, in 1954, she became the first black woman to earn an architect's license. In 1959, she became the first black woman member of the American Institute of Architects. And in 1980, became the first black woman elected as a fellow of the AIA. Okay. So while Scleric was working at a firm in Los Angeles, though, she didn't design many of the projects she supervised, even though she was perfectly capable to do so, simply because at that time, clients apparently would have balked at seeing a black woman designing their project. So, I mean, she's an example of just continually having to fight, essentially, racism throughout her career. Although in 1985... She becomes a founding partner of Siegel, Scleric, and Diamond, one of the largest all-women architectural firms in the United States. But it lasted only, she lasted only four years there because it really didn't attract big-scale projects that she liked to take on. Yeah, and then in 1991, she retired. And she's really remembered for, mainly for the Terminal 1 at the Los Angeles airport at LAX and the American Embassy in Tokyo. And we figured, too, we should highlight a few more influential female architects of the 20th century that are important to know. Because for me, at least, it was really instructive just to see the range of architectural styles Mm -hmm. and the kinds of 
movements that women were influencing at the time. So Mary Jane Coulter, for instance, developed the National Park Service rustic style, a.k.a. parkitecture. She designed a series of buildings at the Grand Canyon, for instance, and throughout the American Southwest. And her work was really flourishing um, around from around 1905 through the 1930s. So that's something I mean, it's a very particular style that a lot of us would recognize if we've been to a national park. Yeah, and then Eleanor Raymond in 1948 worked with MIT scientist and solar power researcher Maria Telkis to construct the Dover houses in Dover, Massachusetts. And these were the first occupied solar heated homes in the United States. Look how far we've co- Oh no, wait, we haven't come very far in terms of solar houses. But well, we're trying. We are some of us are trying. We need we need to summon the the spirit of Eleanor Raymond <laughs> back perhaps. Uh, there's also Hilda Reese who's an architect, designer and curator who helped bring Bauhaus aesthetic stateside, especially after the school was shut down during World War II. There's Eileen Gray and her iconic house E1027, who is a pioneer of modernism. Yeah, she built the house with input from her lover. And actually, the letter, the the name of the house, E1027, represents letters in their names. But after she and her lover, Jean, split up, this guy who's known as Le Corbusier came to stay at the house, and he ended up defiling it by painting murals all over the place, and the house has since fallen into disrepair. Yeah. Well, Corbusier, why would you do such a thing? Because he's a jerk who probably didn't like women being all up in architecture. And then there's Lino Bobardi, who was born in Italy, but most of her work has been in Brazil. She's a modernist architect who has been known for these large public buildings that she's done, such as the S. ESC Pompeia Cultural Center, which kind of exemplifies how she approaches, has approached spaces, trying to take sort of the human element into it as well. Um, she once said, quote, the spirit of modern architecture is unwavering and shaped by a love of humanity, which some people would probably say hints at more of a feminine design aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, when you you it's it's hard to read anything about architecture especially women in architecture and not come across the view whether it's held by the writer or just reported on by the writer that women do things this way men do things this way and that women are very social minded they're very uh we're we're caring and we're nurturing and so we want to design curvy shapes that are all focused on bringing people together whereas men are just designing you know glass and steel penises lots of lots of phallic buildings so in the first half of the podcast we trotted through some of the trailblazing names of women in architecture who have been building buildings for the past century or so and now we're going to get a little intellectual for a minute we're going to move away from the actual structures and talk about more i guess of brain structure this question of whether men and women design buildings differently because the longstanding answer has been, well, yeah, I mean, of course, because there are biological arguments against women's just basic capacity for architecture, beginning with our mere physicality. Yeah, just like when women first started entering the field, people were like, oh, you're too feminine. Ah, How are you going to do anything as masculine as have an idea, um, people are still questioning women's physical strength. And so at the turn of the century, 
people were arguing that architects need a strong, athletic body, and that was considered impossible for a woman to possess without transgendering herself in the process. Yeah, this is coming from a paper, Architects in Skirts, the Public Image of Women Architects in Wilhelm, Germany. And there was lots of concern at this time over women in particular having vertigo, likely in conjunction with ideas about hysteria. Um, so, for instance... On building sites, there was just this presumed female propensity for dizzy spells. So it was like, oh, women should have nothing to do with this because, first of all, our uterus is going to be going a little, a little out of whack. That promotes vertigo. So if we we're building a building, we will fall to our death at some point. Well, this whole, yeah, I mean, and the whole concern over strength and, and ability and, and whatever. I mean, it's the same stuff that we talked about in our construction episode where people are so concerned about women being too small and weak to lift things. When in reality, the stuff that you do on the job site is so rarely about brute strength and more about just being smart and safe and quick-witted, honestly. Yeah, well, there's also some interesting class panic, too, that ties in. And it also is an interesting parallel with our conversation about women in construction because when it comes to architecture and design, this was considered an appropriate field for a middle or upper class woman to pursue because it requires more education. They might have the funding to be able to go to college. But at the same time, they were still caught in this gendered catch-22 because these wealthier women who would have had the most access to college were considered too soft and frail for architecture because their money and lifestyle and luxury made them soft. As opposed to the sturdy working class woman who might have had the brawn, but not the financial access to architecture. So we're so screwed. Yeah. I mean, basically, if a woman had a feminine body, she was inherently considered unfit to be an architect. But if a woman was an architect, then she inherently couldn't be feminine at the same time. Yeah. Plus, we were wearing all sorts of crazy clothes that were totally a liability on construction sites. And so you have somebody like Margaret Pick, who at the turn of the century recommended loose reform trousers, which just sounds to me like stretchy pants. Although my stretchy pants would not be safe on a construction site. Anyway, she also recommends high boots and a smock almost to the ankles as painters and stonemasons wear. So it's like, it's okay if you wear a bifurcated garment just cover that stuff up yes get, get the smock i mean I, I mean i will say though that does sound a lot like what i wear in the winter <laughs> boots trousers and a, and a drapey shirt um we also found a source gender studies in architecture space power and difference by dorta coleman that really gets into the sort of the, the historical outline of how Women supposedly see spaces differently from gentlemen. So, for instance, Coleman cites Henry Atherton Frost, who in 1915 founded the first architectural school intended exclusively for women, the Cambridge School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. So that's a great thing. But at the same time, Frost definitely thought that there was a sex difference in design, noting how women are drawn to housing developments instead of individual homes because we're all about community and socialization. Right. Yeah. So not so much aesthetics, more about the the social function of things like community facilities that we really supposedly have an interest and a focus on social and human 
interest. And not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just that women have historically been pigeonholed as just like, oh, well, they're just they're only going to build like a school, whereas I'm going to build like a powerful uh, a space school, right? A school in space. <laughs> Beat that, ladies. It's it's so tall and phallic that it is going to reach to space. Yes. Uh, you can also at this point make a drinking game for the number of times we say phallic <laughs> in this podcast. Um, but that that sentiment, though, is still echoed in, yes, dated, but a 1989 survey by Progressive Architecture found that 40 percent of both male and female architects believed there was a difference between the designs of men and women. And they said women are best at designing buildings, again, for home, healthcare, and school. Sounds very familiar. And men are the best at building representative and commercial architecture, which, I mean, that just sounds like our, you know, separate spheres, period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, a lot of this comes down to arguments about our visuospatial skills. This is stuff we talked about in our episode on Legos. We talked about this in our interview with the Goldie Blocks founder. So it's the idea that, you know, boys can go outside and roam and learn about how buildings are built and develop those visuospatial, visuospatial skills. I got it. Uh, whereas girls are much better at things like language skills. But the whole thing is that we don't ever doubt that boys can eventually develop those language and writing skills. But we somehow doubt that girls can ever catch up with visuospatial skills that boys are supposedly better at. Yeah. And this leads us to a lot of analysis and scholarship in the 70s and 80s in particular on architecture and feminism. There actually is something called feminist geography and feminist architecture, which is exploring how sort of trying to separate what is a biological sex difference from just our gender roles kind of getting in the way of what we think people can and can't do. And I mean, it it really does get interesting when you think about Public space, private space, the domestic sphere, the public sphere, and what men and women build and how they build it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a lot of f- feminist ideology that can go into analyzing all of that. And we, we honestly don't even have time to get into it. Um, but in the book, Design and Feminism, Revisioning Spaces, Places, and Things, uh, it cites a 1981 article emphasizing how female design principles are, quote, more user-friendly than, than design-oriented more flexible than fixed, more organically ordered than abstractly systematized, more holistic than specialized, more complex than one-dimensional. And again, it asks the question of whether this is a result of the dominance of male design principles, because that's the thing that comes up a lot, too. It's like, well, I mean, is this just an issue, too, of women being forced to conform their feminine design aesthetics Mm -hmm. to an overwhelming male design paradigm. Yeah. I mean, Kristen's right. There is so much, potentially so much that we could talk about with just with these issues about feminism, but also men and women seeing things differently and whether that's ingrained or nature versus nurture. It makes it has made me look outside a little bit differently, though. Pay attention to buildings a little bit more closely. Obviously, I can't, you know, immediately look out and identify. Oh, well, that I know the architect who built that. But. When you start looking too at for images of all of these buildings and spaces that the women we have cited and will cite, well, we're going to talk about more contemporary female architects in just a minute. When you look at the buildings they build, 
from my untrained eye, I don't see, oh, well, of course, that's a lady building. Yeah. It's shaped like a tampon. That's not phallic. <laughs> that's a tampon. You know, like, yeah. So it does get kind of the, the philosophical aspect of it gets really interesting. Well, and unfortunately, we can't indulge it too much in the podcast. Yeah, but. because it could be a spiral. Because when you look at Julie Morgan, who did the Hearst Castle and that giant compound, I mean, you could you could talk about how, OK, well, she designed something for a man so she compromised her feminist or her female or feminine vision or no she's such a great architect that she can design for anyone or no maybe it was masculine because it was her vision like ah, you know it, it's yes we need to talk about women in architecture and where we've been where we're going where we are now but it's almost like you kind of just want to shout like let people do their own designs build your buildings uh, echoes of the fountainhead reverberating through um, the industry, though. Let's talk about the industry today because it could use some renovation. And like you mentioned earlier, Caroline, there is a lot of awareness of this issue of this gender gap in architecture. But a lot of head scratching about, well, how do we even fix this? Does it even really need fixing? Because women earned Half of all U.S. undergrad degrees in architecture, but only make up 20% of all licensed practitioners. So that's a big drop off. What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of theories. It's the same stuff that we've talked about in any of our STEM episodes or that we talked about in our construction episode. Um, but a lot of those theories revolve around uh, child care, around money, around sexual harassment and discrimination and things of that nature. And there was this op-ed by Maria Smith in architectural review that points out that the question isn't really that simple. It's not black and white. And it boils down to a, a kind of a variety of answers And in terms of the job being not as creatively fulfilling as many people, both men and women, expect it to be. The fact that the education, the architecture education itself, prepares students poorly for the actual work. So basically saying, you know, like, are women not going to put up with a job not being as creative as they expected or not be doing the work that they expected, whereas men are going to just deal with it and plow through until eventually there's some, like, big name star architect? Yeah, I mean, Maria Smith definitely seemed unsatisfied with a lot of the go-to answers for the the question of why that drop off from 50% to 20%. And, I mean, she highlights the fact that, yeah, there is... Awareness. She cited a women in architecture survey, which found that 79% of women and 73% of men said that the profession is too heavily male. But it's still, it seems like every article that we read about this kind of answered some questions, but also raised more questions. Um, the issue of not so friendly female work environments has been pretty firmly established. There is often echoed uh, this traditionally macho culture pandering to <laughs> so-called starkitects. And then this dismissal of supposedly feminine design values being like, oh, no, stay away. Stay away, tampon buildings. Yeah. Ugh, all the curves in those tampons. Um, but also there's this intensive education track. You know, we just mentioned education, but the intense track means that you often aren't licensed until your late 20s. And so that's bumping up against women being, you know, ready to have kids or get married. Yeah. And I think that even 
getting it by the late 20s is ambitious. Yeah. I want to say that one statistic said on average, you're getting it at age 34, which is right, especially for women today. That is prime child having time if that's in your mm-hmm. if that's something you want to do. Yeah, but I mean, talking about men versus women leaving the field, a survey that was cited in Gender Studies in Architecture, Space, Power, and Difference found that none of the guys in the survey cited as problems the long hours, the gender-related discrimination, healthcare needs, deadlines, or needing to spend more time with family as why they left. They were simply no longer interested, or they just wanted to make more money. Ooh, and let's talk about money for a second. There are some not-so-favorable employment statistics. For instance, if you look at the top-tier architects, the people who are heading up firms, as of 2011 at least, only 17% of principals and partners at architecture firms were women, and the top five firms in the U.S. are all pretty much male-dominated. And there's also a pretty consistent wage gap in firms and also as sole practitioners, women consistently earn anywhere from 7 to 17% less than men. But again, men are consistently likelier to ask for more money at every performance review, which kind of echoes back to the fact that they might be likelier to leave because they're like, hey, I just want more money. And you also have to take into account that twice as many female architects are unemployed today compared to men. Yeah, I mean, this was something architecture, I'm sure, has been recovering since then. But during the recession, people in architecture were out of a lot of jobs and it seemed to hit women disproportionately compared to women. Although, uh, where does it seem best, at least statistically, for female architects who have the most jobs? Scandinavian women, because in pretty much every uh, like quality of life measurement, Scandinavia always rules when it comes to women. Yeah, it's yeah, gender inequality. What gender inequality? What is that? Um, but you know, let's look at the education and mentorship aspect of things. You know, we talk about mentorship a lot on the podcast. Um, but there was a study on architectural training in Germany, the US, and Canada that found there were very few female professors of design. They were more commonly found in architectural history and environmental psychology. And so this raises the question of whether architectural education promotes a male-dominated practical model, thus, you know, sort of mitigating these supposed sex differences in the final designs. Whether you're a man or a woman, if you have someone who is male training you, you might adopt their outlook, basically. Yeah. And gender studies and architecture cited a couple of women in architecture who think that, yeah, that's absolutely the case. Jane Park, for instance, said, quote, architects who are women and or come from a working class background have to acquire an outlook similar to that of middle class males, the dominant group in the architectural profession. This is why we shouldn't expect buildings designed by women to have any qualities distinct from those designed by men. Yeah, and Janice Goldfrank also agrees, but notes the differences. She says, my own impression is that men and women design differently. Their approaches to design reflecting their upbringing and life experiences. Women often emphasize feelings of well-being and harmony in a building rather than a structure's visual impact. These differences are not drastic, however, as women building and designing today have learned their trade from men. So, I mean, again, though, it seems like with that question of do we design differently, the answer always wants to be yes, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. But just some 
some architectural food for thought. And really, I'm so curious to hear from any architects or students of architecture, just people who are familiar with architecture to weigh in on this. But when it comes so to so few women being at the top, that means, of course, it's less likely for female up-and-comers to get mentored by other women at the top. And we haven't even mentioned motherhood, child care. This is a big issue. Yeah. And this whole, yeah, the issue of leaving to become a mother or once you've become a mother. And Allison Brooks, who's the director of Allison Brooks Architects, says that cost of child care is the number one reason that women leave. And Jessica Reynolds, the direct, a director at VPPR, uh, says, you know, it's not an accident that many well-known female architects are childless. Just like Julie Morgan, who said, you know what? No kids. That's fine. My buildings will be my legacy. Yeah, well, and I think this ties into a 2014 Architects Journal survey wherein 88% of women respondents said that they felt like having kids would hold their careers back. But interestingly, 67% of male respondents to the same survey didn't think that women having kids would affect their careers, women's careers. Hmm. It's interesting that men have that different perception that like, why would you think that? Well, this well, one thing that was noted, too, in terms of the culture of firms and when people leave is that there's a distrust of people leaving and then wanting to come back. It's like, no, once you're gone, you, you just go. That's so strange. Well, to probably. Me. Well, the I mean, think about all of the time invested it's in the same way. I don't know. It seems even more intense almost than law, which yeah. is a ton of hours every week. You're sure. always buried in work. But it seems like there's at least more room to come and go with that, whereas architecture seems even more rigid. Hmm. Well, that's another thing that I hope our listeners tell us about, because I am curious about that. Yes. In dynamic. Uh, for listeners who aren't aware, Caroline and I are not architects. <laughs> Although when I was 12, I did want to become one. Hmm. And I drew a number of really boring houses until I realized, <laughs> you, know, you know what, Kristen? I don't think this is your strength. I'm sure you had all the important elements, Kristen. The sun in the corner, the box, the yes. triangle, the yes. triangle roof, uh-huh. the, the rectangle chimney. There were flowers outside. And I had, and I can still remember it so clearly, I had a cool cardigan that I would wear while drawing <laughs> uh, my little architectural <laughs> plans that I felt like kind of tied the whole thing together. I'm sure it did. Yeah. I'm sure. I was, at the time, I was wearing my red Stegosaurus sweatshirt. That had a picture of a stegosaurus with the word stegosaurus under it. Budding archaeologist over here. No kidding. Yeah, I like how neither one of us. We, we didn't. And here we are. And here we are. <laughs> what? Those who those who can't do podcasts. Oh, ouch, man. Ouch. But uh, so let's uh, let's talk about women who are doing things outside of the podcast studio today. There are plenty of interesting names. But again, you know, Kristen and I, we're not architects and we don't know everyone in the field, but we can provide a few names of, of women who are out there kicking butt. There's Zaha Hadid, who is probably the best known female architect living today. In 2004, for instance, she became the first woman to win the Pritzker Prize, which is the industry's top honor. Yeah, Zaha Hadid, uh, you also might know her from The Daily Show because Jon Stewart had a lot to say about her design for a stadium in Qatar uh, that he said looked like a vagina. And it does look like a vagina. It does look I'm sorry. It does look like a vagina. But she was not happy with that. And she said that basically you wouldn't be saying that about a stadium a man designed. It's just because I designed it. And it's like, well, I'm pretty sure sh- I'm. 
Okay. But isn't her frustration understandable now knowing what we know about oh, yeah. architectural history? But I thought, you know, so it's a very, cur- obviously, it's a very curvy stadium if you want to go Google it right now. Um, it's very curvy. And she has a great quote because there's all of this talking about how women and men supposedly have different design ideals and aesthetics and everything. She has a great quote that, why would you design at just one angle? Why would you just go straight up? There are 359 other degrees. And so I, I like that. Yeah. I like that perspective. Um, there's also the amazing Denise Scott Brown, who was snubbed for the very same Pritzker Prize in 1991, but it was awarded to her husband, Robert Venturi, that year. Uh, and they, the thing is, like, one can't exist without the other. They definitely had careers and education and all of that stuff before they met, before they got married. But basically, once they came together and combined forces, they were, they were a much greater force of nature. And so a lot of people, particularly some students at Harvard, who were protesting this snub, uh, said that you can't you can't have one without the other. She needs to be recognized too. And and Scott Brown has been enormously influential. Her her focus uh, has been on buildings in Los Angeles and in Las Vegas. And she's also uh, she's pretty feminist. Yeah, she's pretty out about feminism and has said before, like if you are a woman in architecture, you need feminism to get you through. And she also called the Pritzker Prize a, quote, sad old white man's award, <laughs> to which I wonder if husband <laughs> Robert was like, hey. Well, no, her husband signed that Harvard petition to get her on the award as well. Well, and didn't they, in follow-up to that, be like, well, we're not going to give you the award, but we're going to honor... A woman who died a really long time ago, Julie Morgan. Here you go. <laughs> oh, no, that was sorry. That was uh, the AIA giving her a gold um, medal. Yeah, I mean, basically, the Harvard students were protesting the idea that the prize jury was upholding some idea of this lone wolf male Stark attack that, hey, you can't have Robert Venturi without Denise Scott Brown. And so screw you guys. But it is kind of especially gross when you read about them and you realize that her husband is often considered this like quiet and easygoing type and she's considered a brash loudmouth. And so I just love it that she's like, well, so screw you. Yeah, she probably doesn't consider that an insult either. No, She's like, yeah. nor should she. <laughs> uh, well, also in Chicago, we have Jean Gang, who is a highly respected architect. And the Aqua Tower in Chicago is the tallest building designed by a woman, which is a little bit of a backhanded accolade, which some people are saying, like, why, why even add that qualifier in there. Yeah. Stop stop ghettoizing our buildings. And yeah. who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and those are only three names. There are a lot of other names that we could continue ticking off because there are women who are building incredible buildings and creating incredible spaces and innovating in this field and calling attention to that 50% to 20% drop-off and uh we want to hear, perhaps, from some of you who are in the field. What What do you think about women in architecture? Is it important for women to build buildings, to be, uh, you know, whether it's on a construction site doing the actual physical labor of building a building or doing the design work? And why does that make a difference? And I'll tell you what, some feminist architects would have a lot to tell you about it. So we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. 
Well, I have a letter here from Autumn. She's writing in about our underpants episode. Uh, she says, thanks for the wonderful episode on the history of underwear. It was both fascinating and amusing. It made me think of a story that I'd love to share. When I was a kid, we had a bin of dress-up clothes that we used for play and Halloween costuming. In it were many old things that had belonged to my grandmother and great-grandmother. Basically, my mother felt bad about throwing out anything old when my grandparents died, so all the things got tossed in the box and forgotten. When I was 16, my high school put on the musical Fiddler on the Roof, which is set in 1905. Searching through all the old clothes, I found a pair of very full, drawstring cotton bloomers, complete with split crotch. My mom and I determined that they had belonged to my great-grandmother, who lived from 1886 to 1959. Not sure of the exact age of the bloomers, but we guessed they predated 1920. I thought they were perfect to be part of my costume and wore them proudly on stage with tights underneath. It felt really neat to have historically accurate underwear beneath my dress. Backstage, someone noticed that the bloomers had a split crotch and called me out on it. When told that they were my great-grandmother's, jokes started circulating about my crotchless great-granny panties. It was all in good fun and proof that we kids knew nothing about underwear of the past. Sadly, the 100-year-old cotton did not last after its stage outing. It got a rip, and I put them away. Ten years later, I was in another production of Fiddler and felt sadly underdressed without my ancestral underwear. The idea of what my great-grandmother would have thought if someone had told her that her underwear would be worn as a costume in a play one day amuses me. If I try to think of my own cheapy Hanes cotton hipsters being worn a hundred years from now, it seems impossible and just plain weird. So thank you for your letter, Autumn. Well, I've got a letter here from Genevieve about our episode on Hollywood's first female directors. And she writes, I have to say I learned a lot. I graduated from film school almost two years ago and had no idea about Alice Guy Boucher, Lois Weber, or many of the other amazing ladies you covered. I'm so excited to start watching their films. When I first started college, I thought I wanted to be a director, but it was in school that I learned to edit and appreciate the art of making film into its final product. Right now, I'm an editor for a wedding videography company. Nothing glamorous. My girlfriend and I live in Long Beach right now, but when she finishes film school this semester, we're moving to L.A. to be closer to all the real jobs, in quotes. I have to admit I'm a bit nervous about breaking into the industry. Many of my friends have told me horror stories of sexist bosses and the like, which concerns me even more since I'm a pretty butch-looking woman. My biggest fear is being judged by my appearance before my work can speak for itself. If I had my dream job, I would be mentored by a female editor like Thelma Schoonmacher or Joan Sobel. You two are awesome. I'm a new listener and have since gotten my cousin on the Sminty train. All the best, Genevieve. Well, Genevieve, first of all, I just want to congratulate you for following your dream. If anything, that is awesome. And you have all the skills, ladies, so you're going to do awesome in L.A. And I can't wait to see some incredible film that you're going to edit. So thank you in advance for that. And thank you in advance for all of everyone else's letters. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including our sources, so you can follow right along, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. On this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 